Good morning. Oh, VJ fixed my mic. Thank you, VJ. John chapter 3, page 888 in the Pew Bible. One verse this morning. The verse. John 3.16. You probably have it memorized. It would still be helpful if you had it open up in front of you. We're going to need to look at it. David Murray calls John 3.16 an unpreachable text. I now have to preach uh, a text that a great preacher calls an unpreachable text. So please be praying for me. Why would this, the seemingly most simple, the most famous verse in the whole of Scripture, be unpreachable? Well, in part, it's because it is the most famous verse in the Bible. It's famous because it's wonderful, and it's hard to do justice to such a wonderful text. But the knownness of the verse also causes a problem. You already think that you know this verse. Uh, You assume that you understand it. You've heard it so many times, said to mean the same thing each time, that it's difficult to hear anything else. But, as R.C. Sproul says, John 3.16 is not only the most known verse in the Bible, it is also the most distorted and misunderstood verse in the Bible. Sometimes that which is most known is least known. So, I'm going to attempt a difficult task this morning. I'm going to attempt to convince you that maybe John 3.16 doesn't exactly mean what you think that it means. And my goal in doing so is not in any way to minimize the glory of John 3.16, but to maximize the glory of John 3.16. My goal is not to take John 3.16 away from you, but to help you step back, really look at it, understand it, and then hopefully give it back to you, better understood as being even better and more glorious than you thought. That's our goal this morning. It's going to be difficult. But first, I'm supposed to convince you to listen. I'm supposed to, in introductions to sermons, give you some sort of hook that will draw you in at the beginning and convince you to listen. How about this one? Uh, You are going to die. It's true. Happy Easter. But this is important because this is the point of Easter. This is what makes what we celebrate at Easter such good news. It was a year ago that I stood here and preached the strangest Easter sermon of my life. I was here, but you were not there. I preached to an empty room, as you all said at home, during the peak of the pandemic. Elmhurst was the very epicenter at the time. 800 people a day were dying in our state. Sharon's sister had just died. We were surrounded by death daily, and so I preached for Romans 8 on death. And today, a year later, Easter 2021, I am again going to preach on death. Why? Well, because it's still there, because I can't stop thinking about it, because our dear sister Lydia just received her diagnosis last week that she is facing death imminently. But she at least knows that her death is coming. Your death, too, is coming. But you may not really know it or live in light of it. For every single one of us was dying from the day that we were born. And plus, our text demands that we discuss death. Why? Because the whole point of what God does in this most famous verse is that we may not perish. We use that word today generally just to talk about food, right? Meat perishes. Well, we are meat and we perish. The Greek word literally means to be destroyed, to be killed, to die. 
So we are all of us facing death and destruction this morning. This verse tells us that God has done something about that death and destruction in the very thing that we celebrate this morning. You are facing death and destruction, but do you ever consider that? Do you live your present life in any way in light of your future death? Because you should. The Puritan Edmund Barker writes, Every Christian has two great works to do in the world, to live well and to die well. The Book of Common Prayer says, Man that is born of a woman hath but a short time to live, and is full of misery. He cometh up, he is cut down like a flower. He fleeth as it were a shadow, and never continueth in one stay. In the midst of life, we are in death. Charles Spurgeon says, We are flying as on some mighty eagle's wings, swiftly on towards eternity. Let us talk then about preparing to die. It is the greatest thing we have to do. Are you doing anything to do with the greatest thing that you have to do? And he says, we have soon to do it. So let us talk and think something about it. Well, let's do that this morning from John 3.16. You think that you know this verse. Let's see if you do. Jesus has just told Nicodemus, you must be born again, which we saw also then means, well, you must be dead. If you need to be born, you must not be alive. You need spiritual birth. Well, now God tells us that he has done something so that we may never die, spiritually die. So we move from the need for spiritual birth to the solution for spiritual death. What has God done? How can you be prepared to face your physical death and the following potential spiritual death? Well, it's only first by being spiritually alive. You can only be prepared for death by first being born again. How does that happen? That's still what we're looking at here in this text. So we're going to walk through five brief points this morning, hopefully from the text. I'm going to try to build an argument that will hopefully unpack and reveal the meaning of this wonderful verse. Point number one, God loves by giving. We need to define what love is. We're going to spend most of our time here because this is the foundation. We start with God. Everything starts with God. If we can get this first point right and understand this, I think everything else will naturally follow. So we need to understand what it means that God loves and what it means that God gives. What is the nature of that giving? What happens when the omnipotent, sovereign God of the universe gives? Well, let's see. Then, point number two, we'll narrow that in more specifically and see that God gives his son to die. Here's where context will help us. Verse 16 explains verse 14. Verse 14 clarifies verse 16. Then, point number three, explaining further, why does God give his son to die? God's son's death takes away sin. We cannot forget John 1, 29. If 3.16 is connected to 3.14, it must also then be connected to 1.29. Point number four, what is the result of taking away sin? Sin taken away brings death. And then fifth, and brings life, sorry, sin taken away brings life. And then fifth, and finally, life brings belief. And remember, that's the whole point of this book in which this verse that we are looking at finds itself. So we start with God, and we end with belief, and we're going to track how the one results and ends with the other. 
So let's get to work. Let's read. It's John 3.16. I'm going to do the thing I say not to do. Do as I say, not as I do. But for the sake of time, we're just going to read this one verse. But we're going to work hard to go back and connect it to its context. Um, so just John 3.16. Pay attention. Think about it. This is what God wants to say to you today. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Let's begin with a word of prayer and ask God uh, to help us in this time. Gracious Heavenly Father, uh, the God who is and the God who speaks, uh, we thank you for this word. We thank you that in your providence uh, we gather on this Resurrection Sunday to hear from this uh, most famous of verses. So Father, we pray that you would help us to hear it rightly. Father, first I pray that you would help me to preach it rightly. My words must correspond with and explain and expose your word. So, Father, please help the preaching of your word. Father, please help the hearing of your word. I pray that our focus would be on the text and on your words, and I pray that you would work through it, and I pray that you would reveal. I pray that you would use this time to show us how the truth of this verse may be so much better than we thought. I pray that you would use this word to reveal to us uh, your great love for us, that love that gives us life. So, Father, please work now through the preaching of your word. Um, please use this time uh, to help us. Father, use this time to draw someone and move someone from death to life. Use this time to bring glory to your name. And we ask this all in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, so you have an impending death problem. We have all received a death diagnosis. Let's see what God has done about it. Point number one, God loves by giving. For God so loved the world that he gave. Right, so here is maybe our most difficult point to understand because of all the baggage that comes with some of those words, God and love and world. We just assume that we know these words and what they must mean, but always be careful with that. Don't read into these words what the culture around us may press us to read into these words. Don't just assume that you know. Remember that Nicodemus has come to Jesus in chapter 3 verse 2 saying, we know and Jesus has cut him off and corrected him, basically saying, no, 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 you have no idea. We know, chapter 3, verse 11. I know, Jesus is saying. And so in a similar way, we often think that we know, but then God's word just comes in and wrecks and corrects. We could look at that just with the word God. We could just spend our whole sermon right there. What does that mean? What does that word mean? Who is he? We all have some just beliefs and assumptions about who he is. I was reading a blog post this week, actually, uh, from a man named Joseph Prince. You may have heard of him. He's a very famous and successful and good-looking prosperity preacher in Singapore. My, remember, one of my rules is don't read a book if it's the author's face on the cover of the book. That's just a good, <laughs> safe rule to follow. Um, but he writes this in this post. He says, my Bible tells me clearly that God is a God of love. That's our next word. And that he is a good God. Boom. Amen. Great. Sounds really, really good, right? Those are the correct words. What does he mean by those words? What does he mean when he says that God is a God of love? He goes on. This means that if you are sick, God's heart is and will always be to heal and restore physical health and life 
to you. He so desires for you to walk in physical health and life that he gave you his beloved son, Jesus, so that you might have life and have it more abundantly. God's will is for you to walk in abundant physical health and life. He does not want your body and life sapped, incapacitated, or debilitated by pain, sickness, and disease, and he will never withhold physical healing from you. That's interesting. He's used some words that are very biblical and correct and true, but then he has said he means something different by those words. He will never withhold healing from you. Someone should tell my back that Prince says that God will never withhold healing. Uh, Someone should have told my grandmother, who died from cancer, that God will never withhold healing. So you see how Prince has taken these words, God and love and good, and then snuck in all kinds of other assumed meaning. God's love to Prince equals God's will for your, you to be physical health and to never withhold physical healing. And that's just obviously utter foolishness. Right? That is unbiblical nonsense. So we need to be very careful with the words people use and what they mean by those words, even the word God. So we need to be especially careful then with the word love. We read our current culture's assumption about the nature of love into this verse, and you will get this verse completely wrong, right? Because for most, love is simply some sort of strong feeling of affection. And increasingly, there is the unstated assumption that this love will consist of this affection alongside unconditional acceptance, and not just acceptance, but affirmation. Right, so I love you then means I have some sort of positive feeling towards you. These positive feelings will be expressed in part as accepting you and affirming you as you are. Right, so love today means affection, acceptance, and affirmation. Right, so if you don't accept someone and their lifestyle choices, if you don't affirm or celebrate them, then you are labeled unloving. And when we take that definition of love and read it into John 3.16, well, we just utterly lose the beauty and wonder of this verse. And so the point of all this is we've got to work hard to understand what these words actually mean. What is biblical love? Well, we wouldn't do uh, badly to start here. Love gives. This is what love is. Love gives. I want you to think here of God's love not as affection, but action. Not as affection, but action. Love, we know, seeks the good of the love. Right? Love doesn't just feel. Love acts. God who is love, therefore then acts on behalf of the loved. And here we're told that he does so through the means of giving. So again, love not as affection, but action. And the text indicates this. For us. All right, so listen, stick with me. We're going to have to tackle some Greek and some grammar today. Bear with me. Grammar can be good. It's good to be stretched. It's good to think. Look at the text. Look at it. Remember, we are reading an English translation of what was originally written in Greek. And Greek is a bit different than English. One of the ways that Greek is different is word order. In English, word order is quite rigid. Right? We do it naturally whether we know the rules or not. It usually goes uh, subject, verb, object. Right? Subject, Matthew, uh, verb, hugged, uh, object, Melissa. Right? Matthew hugged Melissa. And the word order matters to understand the meaning of that sentence. Well, that's not so much the case in Greek. In Greek, there is more freedom and fluidity, fluidity in the order of the words. But one of the main ways in which you draw attention to a word in Greek is to put it where you wouldn't expect it 
or to simply put the word first in the sentence. Right? We can't put whatever word we want in the sentence. Greek can. And when it puts the word first, it says, hey, pay attention to this. Pay attention to first words. And so this is masked for us a bit in the English. For us, this famous verse starts with for, not the first word in the Greek, God, not the first word in the Greek, so. That's the first word in the Greek. And so is so significant. Uh, sometimes the smallest word is the biggest. And so it may be with so in our understanding of John 3.16. And I don't mean that so is so significant. I mean that it is significant so in this way. So is an adverb. Adverbs modify verbs. So, the so modifies the verb love. So is telling us something about this love. And again, we tend to read this word as an intensifier. Right? We, words have lost their meaning. So now we can't just say thank you, but we have to say thank you so much. Right? And so we read that and say God so loved the world. Right? He just loved it so, so, so much. That's not how the word is used here. It's not what the word means. Here. here, the Greek word hutos means in this way or in this manner. For example, the very first use of this same word in the New Testament is Matthew 1.18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Same word. So then, so is not about the magnitude of God's love. It is about the manner of God's love. He didn't love us so much. He loved us in this way. And so the Greek, most literally in its order, reads, In this way, therefore God loved. And this changes everything. This is God's love in action. This is what God's love does. This isn't God feeling really, really, really strongly. This is God acting really, really strongly or effectively, as we'll see in a moment. This is not love and affection, but love and action. God loves in this way. He seeks the good of the loved in this way. All right, so what way? We've already seen it. It's our first point. God gives. Right, this is how the manner in which God's love expresses itself. It's always interesting to look at word counts in a book. Right? You can pick up on key themes or ideas of a book simply by counting how many times an author uses a word in his work. If you had to guess, what would you guess is the most repeated big verb in the Gospel of John? You know it. What is it? Anybody? What? Believe. Believe. Good. Well done, BJ. Extra points. Believe is the most repeated big verb in the book. Pistuo. John writes this whole thing, he tells us, that you may believe. And so that verb is repeated 98 times in this book. It's in our verse. That whoever believes. Main verb of the book. Another key verb of the book also found in our text that everyone picks up on is a key theme for John is love. Agapeo. Used 40 times in the book. God so loved. And this is the first use of that word here. So this use is very, very important. We're going to unpack, we're trying to unpack and define that love right now. But there's another verb that gets no love. And all the things that I looked at, all the studies of John, this verb doesn't get any attention. And it's two here in our verse. And of course, love is an important verb repeated 40 times. But this word is repeated 76 times. And it's this word, didomi, 
It's the verb to give. John uses this verb over and over and over again. Many of the times used with God as the subject, as the giver. And I think a study of how John uses and intends this word give sheds some important light on what it means here that God gave. So let's look at all 76 uses of the verb give. I'm kidding. I want to. Um, but I'm serious. Wednesday afternoon I was just wasted. I went on an hours-long deep dive into this, and it just really opened some stuff up and helped me understand this. So I'm going to show you a few of them. I want you to see how God gives. What kind of giving uh, does God do? What does God's giving accomplish? So I'm arguing that an understanding of the nature of God's giving elsewhere in the book can help us to understand God's giving in this verse. I want you to notice the effectiveness or the efficacy of God's giving. That's the case that I'm making. God's giving is efficacious. A couple of verses. There's many that it's hard to choose. Open your Bibles. We're going to run through these. I'm going to show them to you. It'll be helpful if you see them. This theme starts to pick up in our chapter. Our our verse is like the announcement of this theme of giving, and then it explodes. Look at chapter 3, verse 27. John the Baptist is speaking there. And he says, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. So God's giving is required for our receiving. We cannot even receive something unless God gives it. Look down at verse 34 of chapter 3. There we see that God gives the Spirit without measure. Look at verse 35. The Father loves the Son. Notice here we have love. Notice what it says. Notice the connection. He loves the Son, and he has given all things into his hand. So there's a love and give connection again. When God gives, it happens. God gives all things into the Son's hands. Everything is in the Son's hands. We have to skip chapter 4. It's an underappreciated theme of that chapter. It starts off, verse 7, give me a drink. Verse 14, Jesus says, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him, what's going to happen to that water? Will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So give an eternal life connection, just like our verse. And when Jesus gives this water, it will become eternal life. He gives, it happens. Skip the uses in chapter 5, look at chapter 6. 6 and 17 are the big ones. Chapter 6, Jesus has fed the 5,000. Now Jesus is teaching about the bread of life, the true bread that we need to live. That's what he says in verse 35. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So again, we see belief and life connected just like John 3.16. But who will believe? Who will come? Look at verse 37. Oh, notice this. These are wonderful verses. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Look at verse 39. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Look at verse 63. We've referenced this a lot the last two weeks. It is the Spirit who gives life. When the Spirit gives life, life happens. Look at 65. No one can come to me unless it is granted, it's tricky, it's the same word in the Greek, didomi, unless it is given him by the Father. So just in chapter 6, do you see the absolute efficacy of God's giving here? 
All that the Father gives to the Son will come to the Son. God gives, they come. God gives, it happens. God gives, God accomplishes the purpose of his giving. Jesus will lose nothing of what he has been given. God's giving is even required for our coming. It is so effective. So effective giving. Look at chapter 10 quickly. I'm almost done. Now Jesus is the good shepherd. We move from bread of life to good shepherd in verse 11. But look at verse 26. Chapter 10, verse 26. Those who don't believe, don't believe because they're not Jesus' sheep. Look at verse 27. His sheep hear his voice and follow him. Look at 28. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. That's John 3.16. That's just the verse. Give eternal life, never perish. That's the same verse. And again, catch how effective this giving is. Its effect is eternal life. He gives it. They have it. Nothing can stop it. Nothing can snatch them. Look at verse 29. My father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. So as the father gives, so the son gives. As the father's giving is effective, so the son's giving is effective. Last spot, and I'm done. Chapter 17. Thank you for your patience. The high priestly prayer. I'm only giving like 20 of 76, so you're lucky. Look at verse 2 of chapter 17. Jesus prays to the Father that they would both be glorified. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given me. Now three times in that verse. Give, give, give. God gives the Son all authority. God gives the Son all authority to give eternal life to all whom God has given him. Amazing. What is this eternal life? Verse 3, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Look at verse 6. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. Again, twice, God gave Jesus a specific people. Look at verse 8. I have given them the word that you gave me. Verse 9, I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. 11, keep them in your name, which you have given me. Verse 12, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. Verse 14, I have given them your word. 22, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them. Last one, verse 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me. Listen, it should just be a given that John is all about giving. But it's not for some reason. And if we could see it everywhere else, And how John tends to use this verb, I think we could better understand it in John 3.16. And throughout the book, when God gives, John goes to great lengths to highlight the efficacy of God's giving. That that word efficacy just, just means the power or the ability to produce a desired effect. And so when God gives, he gives effectively. Jesus says, God gives them to me. What does that mean? It means no one can snatch them. Out of my hand. Because God's giving cannot and does not fail. God's giving will accomplish the goal of all of that giving, the purpose that He intends. When He gives, He brings to pass the purpose of His giving. When God gives, God does. 
And that is actually demonstrated in what follows in our verse. Right, so that's the necessary, long but necessary foundation that we've laid. The rest should just flow and follow quickly. God loves. We've now been told specifically what that means. He loves in this manner, in this particular way. He gives. God loves by giving. The rest of the book demonstrates the effectiveness of that giving. Does the rest of our verse demonstrate the effectiveness of God's giving? It does. Point number two. Now we can move. God gives. Okay, God gives what? Well, he gives a particular person for a particular reason. Point number two. God gives his son to die. All right, look back at the verse. Small words again. For God so loved the world that. Stop there. That that needs attention. This supports and confirms all that we just looked at. We're not just told that God loves in some general kind of undefined way. We're told that he loves in a very particular, specific way. God loves that. That is a conjunction. Conjunctions connect. Thus, the phrase that follows explains the phrase that proceeds. Here is the explanation of the so. Here is the explanation of the manner in which God loves. He loves in this way. Here's the action. Here's the seeking of the good of the loved. He gave his only son. What? What does that mean? Well, and our answer to that question is going to determine what this verse means and determine what is the nature and extent of God's love in John 3.16. And here's why context is so important. This verse doesn't actually tell us the specifics of the reasons that God gave his son. What he gave his son to do. But the context does. And this is one of the reasons why we tend to get this verse wrong. We see this verse by itself on signs at sporting events. We see it written in marker on Steph Curry's basketball shoes. Jeremy, I won't say what I think of that. I'll be nice. Um, But the point is that John 3.16 does not stand alone. This is why the last two weeks and the first 15 verses of this chapter are so important for understanding this 16th verse. You cannot understand 16 without 1 through 15. Plus, the verse itself won't let itself stand alone. Because go back to the beginning of the verse. We've skipped the very first word in the English. This is the second word in the Greek. And it's an important word. For. What is the for? For. What does for do? It's another conjunction. And again, conjunctions connect. The four connects all that is about to come to all that has come before it. Our verse 16 ends that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The four connects us back. Well, the verse right before verse 15 says that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Same thing. But because that verse 15 also starts with a that, we have to trace that back further. To verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And what is that? We saw it last week. That's the cross. Jesus is the Son of Man, and every time the language lifted up is used in John, it's used in reference to Jesus being lifted up on a cross. And a cross is where you die, 
And remember, the whole purpose of verse 16 is so that God has done whatever he has done here that we should not perish. And so, in the connection back to verse 14, we see that whatever God has done in some way and for some reason involves Jesus perishing. And so, in verse 14, Jesus says, I must die. Verse 15, that whoever believes in me may live. And then verse 16. And now verse 16, we don't have time for this. Verse 16 most likely is John now speaking. John the author. Greek doesn't have quotation marks, so sometimes it's hard to tell who's talking where. Maybe in your red letter it might still be red. It's just, it's hard to say. We're not sure where Jesus starts talking and John starts uh, commenting and explaining. I think verse 16 starts John speaking. Jesus doesn't generally call God God. Jesus generally calls God uh, Father. Uh, So I, I think... John 16, the verse 16 is the beginning of John explaining what Jesus has said, but it doesn't really matter either way. It's all inspired scripture, so I'm not going to waste time on it. So 14, I must die, Jesus says. 15, that whoever believes in me may live. 16, God gave Jesus that whoever believes in him may live. And it's all connected. Verse 14 explains the nature of the giving in verse 16. God gave Jesus to be lifted up and die. And as you read John, along with the other three Gospels, you'll quickly notice something. These four books about Jesus, these, we sometimes call these, these biographies of Jesus. Well, they're not like any other biography. Right? No biography spends over a third of its space detailing the final week of a person's life. All four of the Gospels do. I say Jesus died at 33. We don't know exactly. That means his life was 1,715 weeks long. Why so much attention then only given to one of those weeks? Because this is the point. This is the theme. That week is why Jesus came. That week is what Christianity is about. This is what the Bible is about. This is what we are to be about. Which is, this is what Paul tells us he is about. In 1 Corinthians 1, 23, we preach Christ crucified. Because this is why Christ came. This is why God gave his son. He gave his son to die. But still, that doesn't quite tell us enough. Stop there and we should be confused. Why die? Why give his son to die? What is the purpose of this death? Point number three. Moving quick. God's son's death takes away sin. I think I renamed that poorly worded point in this. Uh, The death of God's son takes away sin. Yeah, that's that's a little bit better. Is there anything in this story so far? Context determines meaning. Is there anything so far in John that indicates to us why Jesus came to die? Of course there is. We looked at this last week. 3.16, God gave the son. 3.14, the son must die. And we saw last week, just as Israel was to look in faith at an image of the very thing that was killing them, so we, when we look at Christ lifted up, we are looking at an image of the very thing that was killing us. For 2 Corinthians 5.21, he was made to be sin. This is what Peter unpacked for us so well on Friday substitution. This is the very heart of the gospel that is life. Whatever Jesus is doing up there on that cross, he is doing it as us and for us. And that verse tells us that he is doing it as sin and for sin. 
So track it again. 316, God gave his son. 14, the son must die. Lift it up in some way as an image of and a substitute of the very thing that is killing us. Have we seen anywhere else yet any indication of this? Have we seen anything else pointing us in this direction and connecting Jesus to this idea of substitute and sin? Yes. John 1.29, right? Here's the why. This is just so masterfully constructed by the Holy Spirit uh, through John. But John 1.29 tells us why Jesus came to die. It gives light into what is happening here in chapter 3, where John the witness tells us, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of what? By the way, this is pretty huge. The sin of the world. That's big. God sends the Son. God sends the Son to die. The death of the Son takes away sin. Remember, this is God's love uh, in action, not in affection. This is God seeking the good of the loved. And now, here, we're seeing more of what that action is. Here's the purpose. Here's why the sending and why the dying. He sends him to die to take away sin. So God loves, God sends, God sends to save. This is Ephesians 2, 4 and 5. God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, so we're sinners, we're the world, we're opposed to God, Paul's, we see God has some sort of great love there for some group of people. Paul calls it us. Well, what does this great love result in? What does this love do? He says, because of the great love with which he loved us, verb, action, God made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved. See, there is the great love of God for a group of people, and that great love results in his making them alive doing something, moving them from death to life, acting on their behalf, saving them by his grace. You see, God's love saves. God loves by giving, and then God gives to save. We began our time this morning with our perishing problem. Why is this the case? Why does death so haunt everything? Why are we all born to die? Why do we have this death sentence looming over us and everything that we do? It's because of sin. It's because the wages of sin is death. Death exists because sin exists. God is life. Life is found only in him and with him. Sin, remember, is the rejection of God. Therefore, it is the rejection of the God who is life. Therefore, sin is at the same time the rejection of life itself. And thus the reception of death. Right? We have a death problem because we have a sin problem. And so what does God do? We create a problem, he provides a solution. He sends his son to die the death that we deserve to die, to take away the sin which deserves that death. Again, are you tracking, do you see what this means then? Do you see what this verse means then? Are you starting to see the internal logic within the verse itself? In this manner, therefore, God loved the world that he gave his son Verse 14, he gave his son to die. 129, he gave his son to die to take away sin. And what happens when you take away sin? Point number four, sin taken away brings life. 
And this should just be common sense. This just logically follows. We've just seen that the wages of sin is death. What happens when you take away the thing which deserves death? No more death. Life. Right? Say that you have maliciously murdered someone. Again, not good. Uh, you're going to jail. You should die. Uh, scripture is clear. Uh, the image of God is so precious. Life is so precious that the taker, taker of life should die. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. But we tend to think that we know better than God. So today you'll probably just go to jail. But say you're standing there in court awaiting the sentence, the verdict, for the murder that you have committed. But say that I then somehow have some sort of magic power to make it so that you never committed the murder, that it never happened. I take away your crime. What then happens to you? You go free. You live. You are now standing there before the judge, and there is now nothing for him to condemn or to convict. That thing has been taken away. And this is what Christ has done. God gave his son. He gave his son to die. He gave his son to die. We're specifically told to take away sin, the wages of which is death. Take away that which is death, and you get life. So there's now nothing for God to condemn or convict. And again, Peter unpacked this Friday night. Propitiation. God, Jesus, turns away the right and righteous wrath of God. How? By absorbing it. By taking on our sin. He then takes on God's wrath. And that means he has thus taken away the sin. There is no more sin and no more wrath left for us, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Thus there is no more death. Only life remains. See, life is the result of the sinning of the Son who was sent to die, who dies to take away sin. The end? Life. Life is the end of this chain of causation that we're seeing in John 3.16. In this manner, therefore, God so loved the world that... For this purpose, he did this thing. He gave his only son for this purpose, that life. The verse itself tells us that life is the ultimate result of God's love. This is the result of God loving in this manner in John 3, 16. God's giving love results in gaining life. Love leads to life. This is his purpose. This is his goal. This is his end. And God, as God, cannot be stopped. He will accomplish what he intends. He will do what he has said. His giving is his doing. J.I. Packer writes in Knowing God that God's love has at its heart, this is such good news for us, it has at its heart an almighty purpose to bless, which cannot be thwarted. See, God's love is a purposeful love. His love accomplishes something. And God does not and cannot fail at that which he purposes and desires to accomplish, which we're told in this text is life. That's what he's doing. That's what he has done. But again, I've left a looming and lingering question, and I've left it on purpose. I have purposed not to spend all of our time on it because I don't really think it's the purpose of the text, but I have to at least touch on it or you'll accuse me of ignoring it. What's the question? Well, then for whom? Did God do all of this? Who did God so love in this manner? 
That's a stupid question you're thinking. This guy's dumb. What are we paying this guy for? It tells us, for God so loved the world. Easy, right? Well, is it? You know, and I left this for the end when we'd be short on time on purpose because I was again tempted to do another word study for you. I'm tempted to show you the 11 different ways that the word world is used in John's gospel. We just assume that it means all people in all places at all times, everyone, period. It doesn't. Some argue that it never means that. I won't quite go that far, but it rarely means that. Ladies, some of you, uh, it's Easter, it's Resurrection Sunday, right? Some of you spent a fair amount of time getting ready this morning, right? Some of that time went to working on your face, right? To, to, to do that, to do that, you used and utilized cosmetics. That's this word, right? cosmos. It can, be, it can mean ordered, it can be, uh, mean arranged or adorned. That's what you did to your face, right? You ordered and arranged and, and adorned. This is that same word. Again, I just mentioned that to, to demonstrate the great range of meaning that this word has. This word, yes, does. Here's this ordered, structured thing. Well, the world is an ordered and structured thing. So here's cosmos, order, structure. Cosmos means world. But again, we just think that we know what this word means. But we have to let scripture tell us what it means. And this word means many things. And the meaning of that word is determined by the context of that word. And so it means different things in different places. For example, we just read in chapter 1, verse 29, the Lamb, Jesus, takes away the sin of the world. As we just saw, if that means every person who has ever lived ever, then what necessarily follows? Every person who has ever lived ever will be saved. Because to take away sin means life, forgiveness, restoration, reconciliation. So world must mean something differently there. John 17, 9. Jesus says, I am not praying for the world. Does he mean that he is not praying for everyone who has ever lived, ever? No, because he goes on to tell us that he is praying for his people, not the world. Right, so he doesn't mean everyone by the word world there. He means everyone who is not his people. So it can't, and plus the thing that Jesus is not praying for cannot be the same thing that God is loving and then taking away the sin of in 316 and 129. In chapter 12, verse 19, the Pharisees see the great crowds following Jesus and they lament, the world has gone after him. Do they mean that everyone who has ever lived ever is now following after Jesus? No, of course they don't. Context determines the meaning of the word world, as it does in John 3.16. We are simply not talking in this verse about God's relationship to everyone who has ever lived Ever. What I'm, I'm, just, I'm ignoring that question. I'm just ignoring the question of God's love for everyone ever. That is a legitimate question. There are verses that we could look at, and there are verses that we could make that case from. This is not that verse. This is not what that, this text is about. Context. Nicodemus, the ruler of the Jews, the teacher of Israel, at the Passover of Israel. Israel at the temple of the Jews, right? We mentioned last week just the absolute Jewishness of this whole section. Nicodemus claims to know. Jesus says, you do not know. He says, you cannot even enter the kingdom unless even you, Nicodemus, you ruler of the Jews, unless even you, the teacher of Israel, are born again. Then we get this explanation in the context of that. What is Jesus saying? Or John explaining about Jesus. Jesus is saying, I am not just the Savior of Israel. I am that, but so much more. 
I am the Savior of the world. Which means not everyone without exception, but everyone without distinction. The world here means the nations, from the Philippines to Peru and every nation in between. God is saving a people for himself, a beautifully diverse body of believers from all times and all places, from every nation. That's the world. God's people are not found on only one nation. God's people are drawn from and saved out of all nations. And you know the very thing that Jesus next does in chapter 4? He goes to one of those nations. He goes to the woman in Samaria. He goes from, to someone about as opposite as Nicodemus as possible. And he gives her spiritual life. This is what I mean. This is what I am doing. This is who I am saving. Because that's what God's love in John 3.16 does. God's love saves. God's love is an effective love. It accomplishes its end, and its end is eternal life to all who believe. That's what the Greek literally says. There is no whosoever in Greek. There is no whoever in Greek. I get that word brought up all the time. It's not there. The word in the Greek is just pos, just all. The translation is literally, he gave his son that everyone who is believing, or he gave his son that the one who is believing in him should not perish but have eternal life. There's nothing conditional about the verse, rightly understood. He gave his son to those who are believing that they should not perish but have eternal life. And that is wonderful, and that is true, and that is life giving, believe, and you will live. But again, make sure and understand it rightly. Point number four. Last thing, very briefly. We did this the last two weeks, so I don't need to spend time on it. But look at the order. Remember, word order in English matters. Life brings belief. Why did I word our point like that? We would think it's the reverse. Belief brings life, and it does. Uh, that would be correct, rightly understood. But we're seeking to better read John 3.16 in its context. And its context is the new birth that God graciously gives in verses 1 through 15. You must be born again, but you are dead. So you cannot cause yourself to be born again. Good news. It is the Spirit who gives life. That thing that is impossible for man quite possible for God. Verse 8, God causes us to be born again through a gracious work of the Spirit. You cannot read 16 apart from 1 through 15. You must be born again comes first. God does it. God gives it. It is the Spirit who gives life. So 1 through 15 precedes 16. As we've been putting it, regeneration precedes faith. Or birth precedes belief. Or life precedes belief. Thus life brings belief. Remember the, the, the birth analogy. The mother does all the work and then the baby cries out in response. Mom initiates, baby responds. God initiates, we respond. We do not believe to be born. We are born and we believe. And it's thus all then by the grace of God. Okay, so do you see how actually wonderful this verse is? We love the supposed universality of this verse, but that's just not what this verse is about. Rightly understood, the words, so, gave, that, whoever, clarifies that. What we tend to miss is the present particularity of this verse. God loves in this way. 
It is a powerful, effective love. It accomplishes its aims, and its aim is life. And to accomplish life for those of us who are dead in sin, the son must die. And so God gave his son to die. And we know, listen, the standard, the measure of the greatness of love is demonstrated in what it gives. And in Christ, God gives to us the best and the greatest of things. Because God, when he gave his only son, he gave his very self. This is what the gospel is. The gospel is God graciously giving to us God. And God's giving will not fail. God will not be rejected. God will accomplish the purposes for which he gives himself. It will result in life to all to whom he is given. Ephesians 5, 25, Christ loved the church. There's the word again. Here's God's love. What does he do for the church that he loves? What does that love do? How did it demonstrate itself? Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Love and give. He gives, he dies, we live. Romans 8, 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How he not also with him graciously give us all things. You see that for those whom God gave his son, he will give all things. See how those two things are connected and they cannot be divorced? We can trust God to give us all things because he has already given us the best thing. The thing that is above all, his very son. And he gave him to die. But why are you here this day? What are we celebrating this day as we should every Sunday? The resurrection. He died. Oh, but church, he didn't stay dead. And he died defeating our death. And he rose again, guaranteeing our life. And that's what this verse is about. Pilgrim's Progress. Life, life, eternal life. So, do you see how much better? I almost panicked and scrapped this whole sermon. I almost quit my job yesterday because like, I don't understand this verse. And then I read John Owen and John Owen was like, yes, that's correct. I was like, okay, I'm sticking with John Owen. Do you see then how this verse is so much better than we thought? Listen, it's, it's not about some vague, general feeling of love that God has for everybody. You know, he just loves everybody so much. No, this verse is about the specific, active, accomplishing, effective, saving love for his people. He loves, and he does it. It's not potential, but it's actual. There's nothing conditional about this verse. It's about what God has done. Saving, death-defeating, life-giving, giving. He gives we live. And church, this is our only hope of life in the face of death, that God does it, God defeats it, God guarantees it, he gives life. So, again, the, the only question that matters is, is, is do you have it? The question is, do you have this Jesus who is the only solution to your death problem? You will die. Has Jesus first died for you? In your place. The one who died and rose again for the forgiveness of sins. The only one who solves this death problem and solves it by dying. And then he rises again. And you know, you know that thing that we celebrate today means for us? The, the resurrection of Jesus guarantees our resurrection to come. Lydia, Jesus' resurrection guarantees your resurrection. And all of ours. This is the only solution to your death problem. It's not God hated this thing and I hope he kind of figured it out and it's kind of thrown. No, this is what God did to save his people. 
Come to him. Well, he says that's the main verb of the book. Believe. That who believes in him. That's true. That's absolutely. Believe and you will live. Believe and you will have experienced the wonderful, life-giving grace of God. Right? How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. Church, effective love is eternally better than potential love. I don't know about you, but saving love is the only hope for a sinner like me. Praise God for his saving giving. That's what John 3, 16 is about. He loves us, and so he gives us his son, and the result is and will be life. That's our only hope in the face of death. If you would, bow with me. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, please help us now. Work through your word. Father, your word is perfect. Your word cannot be broken. It is right and true in all that it affirms and all that it says. So I pray that that would be uh, what is uh, central. That would be what is our focus. Um, your word would be what uh, delights us and what change us, changes us and what fills our mind and saves us and uh, gives us great uh, joy and gladness. Father, I am very thankful for the life that is guaranteed for me um, by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I thank you for your effective giving. I thank you for your uh, death-defeating uh, saving, Lord. Father, that is my only hope. And so, Father, I pray that we would more and more delight in your grace and your sovereignty and your power to accomplish that which uh, you have uh, planned and purposed Father, I pray that we would trust you and delight in you and lean on you. I pray that our, our hope would be um, not in um, anything within ourselves, but only in you and what you have done. It is finished, uh, Jesus cried out for us on the cross. And so may we rest in that wonderful truth. May we rest safely in your saving hands. And may our desire then be for all who are around us to know the only solution to this uh, terrible problem of death, which is Jesus Christ. Father, you are the one who saves, but you tell us you save through the preaching of your word. And so we pray that we would um, desire to be the means uh, through which uh, you work uh, your life-giving grace. Father, may we, as we leave this place, I pray, edified and encouraged, go desirous to tell others that there is great news that Jesus Christ is alive and that life can be found only in his name. So Father, compel us encourage us, uh, use us to proclaim the wonderful gospel, the good news of what you have accomplished in John 3.16. And we ask and we pray this only in the name of Jesus. Amen.